Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're well. I'm here this time to bring you some choice cuts from the first day of the Sports Pro OTT Summit USA, where we've been taking a long look at some of the companies, technologies and trends making their way through all that digital disruption in sports broadcasting, particularly those making waves west of the Atlantic. It has been, we're proud to say, our biggest virtual event so far in terms of audience, so I expect a lot of you listening will have been able to take part at some point. Whether you have or not, hopefully you can pick up some valuable insights on this podcast. We're going to be getting a few snippets from the virtual stage a bit later, featuring our headline opening act, Fubo TV Chief Executive David Gandler, and some notes on new digital viewing experiences with the NFL, rolling out a US betting strategy with NBC, and the evolving role of highlights with YouTube. A reminder before we go on that you can, of course, catch up with the full event on demand and at your leisure. Hours and hours of great content to get through. If for some reason you still haven't registered to do so, then head on over to sportspro-ottusa.com. We're also going to be speaking to Jean Machier, the Business Development Director for SaaS Solutions at one of our platinum partners for the event, Harmonic. Before that, we will be starting the podcast where we ended the day with our closing keynote from UFC Chief Operating Officer, Lawrence Epstein. It's been an extraordinary year for the world's leading mixed martial arts promoter, and I spoke to Lawrence about how the UFC coordinated its events during the pandemic, about creating content for TikTok and other Gen Z-focused outlets, and among other things, the opportunities to integrate data, gaming, and betting. But we're just going to present you here with a taster on how the UFC balances its broadcast strategy across different channels and revenue streams, how it's weighing up the challenge of the long-term transition to digital, and why he thinks its earlier centralization of media production and output has stood it in good stead for the era coming up. Just to get us into the conversation, we'd spent the opening few minutes talking about getting events on in the COVID era, UFC Fight Island and the rest. And we join, as I'm asking Lawrence, to sum up those experiences. Print, digital, events, podcasts, sports pro. Uh, what, what have some of the lessons been that you've learned on that side of things from, from putting on these events in these compromised conditions? First of all, from a look and feel perspective, as you say, from, from the point of view of trying to get the event to be as engaging uh, an on-screen product as you could make it without fans being in the arena. What... What's, what was the biggest thing you yeah, learned? So, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, well, there's a lot of things we learned. I mean, one of the things we learned, and this is somewhat obvious, but um, I'll go ahead and say it, you know, how important fans are to the actual product. You know, uh, there's so much airtime that is covered up with with great wide shots showing the arena or fans reacting to, an, you know, something that's happened in the UFC event. And so it really required us to, to really look at the events a little bit differently because, you know, essentially we didn't have a part of our production anymore. And so, you know, I think we got very creative in 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 doing things that sort of filled that that airtime that made the event still, you know, incredibly exciting. You know, another challenge that we had to confront was, you know, athletic commissions and regulators told us, hey, you can only have, you know, a certain number of people at these events, a number that was much lower than we were typically used to. So just to give you some perspective, 
we typically have about 350 people that are involved in the operation of our events. Um, you know, that would include third-party contractors. That would include people at the arenas. That would, of course, include our employees uh, and our athletes and their corner people. Um, you know, we were challenged by regulators to, to cut that number well below 100. So we had to cut by almost two-thirds or more than two-thirds, I should say, the number of people that were involved in, in the production of our events. That really focused us to, to rethink about how we were producing the events and required us to produce them, frankly, in a much more, you know, tight and efficient manner. It also got us thinking about, you know, how people circulate between different, you know, areas of, of the events. And, 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 of course, we had to restrict that. So, you know, there are some great learnings, frankly, that uh, we developed, you know, during this, this crazy time that we've been, uh, we've been dealing with that are going to live on, you know, beyond the COVID era. And I think, you know, we've really tightened up, you know, frankly, from an operation standpoint, you know, how we're producing, you know, our events. And as I said, you know, so many of the things we've learned will continue on once the world gets back to normal. And where are you prioritizing that? Do you expect that that's going to be mainly on the operation side to begin with? Or is it going to be how perhaps you've involved fans with events remotely? What are your thoughts on that at this point? Um, where obviously it's, it's still a little bit speculative because we, we don't know quite when we're going to be back up to full capacity as yet. Yeah, I definitely feel, you know, like, um, you know, we're going to continue, as I mentioned, to, you know, uh, use the learnings that that we had in this in, in the production and operation space. Uh, and we'll continue with those as time goes by. When it comes to fans, I mean, it's it's really tough because, you know, we sort of feel like the live event is like the DNA of the UFC. I mean, everything that we do you know, tries to sprinkle a little bit of that DNA, you know, uh, from the live event, you know, whether it's our video game, whether it's the obviously the video content that we produce relating to our events, uh, whether it's a consumer product, anything that we do, we sort of think, okay, how, how, how do we figure out a way to connect that back to that unbelievable high energy live experience that you have when you come to a UFC event? So, you know, we are absolutely excited to return to, uh, you know, the pre-COVID era and get people, you know, in in the arenas enjoying our events. We feel that's such an important and impactful way to experience the UFC. But but that being said, you know, we understand the realities. And so we're going to continue to look at opportunities to engage with fans remotely. Um, and uh, I think, you know, even when we do return to, you know, the, the normal world, I still think those opportunities are going to be there. Okay. I'm going to throw to the audience in, in just a couple of minutes to see if we've got any questions coming in from uh, from Swapcard. But first of all, let's let's move across a little bit to the distribution side of things. What's the balance right now for the UFC? You've got, you know, you obviously you have pay-per-view events, uh, you have major rights deals with the likes of ESPN, you've got your own content channels that, that are centrally owned, and you've got regional regional partners. What's the balance of your income uh, between all of those activities on the on the broadcast side? Yeah, I mean, to give you everybody a little perspective, I mean, you know, it's a tremendous evolution uh, with respect to, to the UFC over the years. I mean, we, we purchased this business back in 2001 and essentially had a handful of, of sort of broadcast traditional sort of TV deals around the world. And then, you know, in the U.S., we were basically telecasting seven or eight events uh, on uh, pay-per-view platforms, very much like the boxing promoters had done for a long, a long period of time. Um, you know, that that sort of lasted for four or five years. We were then able to, uh, via the success of the Ultimate Fighter, start putting some live fights on, you know, broadly distributed platforms, initially Spike TV, 
uh, that transition to to Fox uh, in in the relationship we have at Fox, which was incredible. But we still, even up through the Fox deal, had the majority, the vast majority of our revenue coming from from pay per view broadcast. Um, with this new deal we have with ESPN, we, we've really sort of, I think, in the United States, created you know just sort of a, a really balanced uh, ecosystem that I think is is sort of the best for for the fans. And uh, I think the best, the best for the UFC, uh, the sustainability of the UFC business. So we've got this broad reach platform with with ESPN, which is, you know, it's just an incredible partner to have. And and when I say broad reach, I'm not just talking about broadcast. I'm talking about all the support that we get on digital platforms, uh, earned media, all the stuff that that we receive there. But but focusing on the ESPN broadcast platform, I mean, it's 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 really second to none when it comes to sports in the United States. We also have a relationship where we broadcast content and events on ABC. Um, and, and of course, that's a free to air network. You know, that's that's a great opportunity for us to engage uh, with our fans, but also to attract uh, new fans. Um, we still have that pay-per-view uh, platform in partnership with ESPN here in the United States, which is, of course, for those 12 or, or 13 major events per year. I mentioned the one we've got coming up this weekend. Um, and then, you know, ESPN Plus which is, uh, you know, turning into this, you know, uh, incredible platform for so many different sports properties. But uh, we've got a, a lot of content on, on that platform. And then, of course, finally, you know, it's our Fight Pass uh, OTT platform. This is a global uh, OTT product, so it's available uh, all over the world. The offering differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But um, this is for the super hardcore fan that, you know, really wants to have access to every single UFC event, all the shoulder programming, plus a ton of other mixed martial arts and martial arts content. And, uh, and and that's been just an incredibly successful product for us. So, you know, the balance that we've got in the U.S. right now with, you know, broad reach, great exposure, you know, pay-per-view opportunities, plus OTT options like um, like ESPN Plus and, uh, and Fight Pass is, is, is really amazing. And then sprinkle on top of all that, you know, all the stuff that we're doing on social and other digital platforms, you know, it's it just, uh, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great situation for UFC fans right now because you can watch us, you know, on so many different platforms whenever you want and, and however you want to watch it. Yeah. So you've obviously you've struck a nice balance there, as you said, between distribution and uh, an income and, and you have all of those different deals, all those different partnerships doing different things for you. Um, the big challenge for every rights holder. And while you do have your own, own uh, in-house media outlets, that's primarily what you are, I guess is that transition from the old pay TV rights model uh, that sustained the sports industry for so long to something that capitalizes on the opportunity in digital, but it's an opportunity that hasn't yet started to, uh, to mature in the same way. How much leeway do you have to manage that transition? How, what's, what's the approach you've, you've taken? Have there been any points where you said, okay, we're gonna have to sacrifice a little bit of income here because the opportunity in five years, if we miss it, is too great. Yeah, the answer is absolutely yes. And, and you know, it reminds me of what we used to do back in the day when we were trying to expand the UFC brand. You know, many times we would take less money from a pay TV platform in order to get, you know, a broad reach on, um, on a free-to-air platform uh, because we wanted to expose people to the UFC brand. And so we had to say, okay, you know, we're thinking for the long term, yes, we're going to take less money in the short term, but over the long term, we're going to expose more people to the UFC product. We're confident in our product. We believe they're going to like it. And uh, ultimately, 
down the road, we'll have bigger monetization opportunities if we grow the fan base. The mindset's a bit the same right now. I mean, you have to take a bit of a leap of faith when it comes to, you know, distributing your content on, you know, what I would call sort of the non-traditional, you know, broadcast platforms. But you have to have the mindset that this is the way that people, at least a good segment of the population, are going to want to consume your content. Uh, you have to believe that it's also uh, like it, like the free-to-air was, you know, uh, a decade ago, this big opportunity for us to attract new fans. And, and anybody who's got kids like I do or anybody who engages with younger people uh, will know the way they consume content is completely different, the way, certainly the way I did. And, um, you know, they, they don't watch TV like, uh, like older people like me do. So you've got to make sure that you've got con content on the platforms and distribute it in a way that will engage with that younger fan. And so, yes, we're taking a bit of a leap of faith. Uh, there's no doubt about that, but uh, we certainly believe um, in the long term this is going to be the right play. And, you know, listen, different markets are in different stages of development. You know, we just did a, a groundbreaking deal with, with Migu um, in, in China, and, and that deal is, is so much different than, you know, anything else that we've done, you know, globally uh, with, the, with our UFC content. And I, I think, you know, it's going to be, you know, somewhat of a model for, for us in, in many jurisdictions around the world. And, and that deal involves, yes, broadcasting, of course, our UFC events, but also involves, you know, training videos and a whole bunch of other things that will be specifically, you know, purposed for that particular market and for distribution on social channels that will engage people with the UFC brand. Okay, a couple of things that we will come back to there, I think. One, uh, you, you talked a lot about engaging younger viewers, and I do want to talk about your partnership with TikTok at some point, um, and also, your new partnership in China. We are going to go to the audience in a second, but before we do, I mean, with all of that, does the fact that you controlled so much of the production, so much of the, um, you know, there was so much more ownership taken in, in terms of how you produced all of that content and, and created it from the outset, has that helped you with the mindset that's needed right now? It absolutely has. And, you know, it, it's funny, you know, sometimes you make good decisions and you're able to reap those benefits. Sometimes you, you have no choices at all and you just, you just sort of got to do what you got to do. And, and ultimately that results in, in great opportunities. And, you know, early on, we bought the UFC in 2001. You know, no one was interested in broadcasting our content, so we couldn't get a broadcast partner to actually do production. So we had to do it ourselves. And, um, you know, that wasn't by choice, frankly, I, if we could have gotten a deal back in the day with uh, with an ESPN that would have produced the content, I'm sure we would have done it. But we we didn't have that opportunity. So we had to do it ourselves. But over the years, we we resulted what, what the result of that was, was us developing a core competency in producing content. Number two, you know, early on, we figured out, wait a second, you know, we think this sport has some some legs internationally. And we began to see that, you know, people around the world enjoyed you know, mixed martial arts, there were athletes from around the world. And as we went to, you know, do content deals around the world, one of the things that we didn't want to do was to have our content seem like it was sort of warmed over U.S. content, you know, for another, for, for, for a different market. So, for example, spend a lot of time down in Brazil. I watch the NFL down in Brazil. I mean, at, at times you'll see, you know, American broadcasters logos on that content. It, it doesn't look like it's produced for the Brazilian market. Um, and so, you know, we, we decided early on that we wanted to make sure that our content, even if the event was taking place in Las Vegas, that the content looked like it was produced for the Brazilian or the Chinese or whatever market 
we were selling that content. In order to do that, you have to maintain a level of control over your content. You can't have people with, you know, mic sleeves that say, you know, XYZ network on them that then you broadcast, you know, to other countries around the world. You, you, you've got to make sure that the aesthetic of your content is, is consistent with, uh, you know, sort of a, an international feed. And so, you know, we, we ended up doing all that stuff. And so, you know, your question is a great one. And, and the answer is absolutely yes. The fact that we have so much control over our content makes the opportunities to do these type of deals, you know, so much easier. I, I frankly, I don't know how we could have done them if we didn't have the control that we have. Hello, this is Matt Rogan. I've spent my career creating and scaling businesses in sports and entertainment. And now I'm trying to find out how businesses can best make their way through these extraordinary times. So together with SportsPro and with leaders from inside and outside sport, I've created the Playbook series. It's the place to go for agenda-free, pragmatic advice to navigate your organization through change. Catch up on our library of articles and podcasts and learn more about how our new labs program can help you succeed. Head to sportspromedia.com splash playbook to find out more. Welcome back to this special edition of the Sports Pro Podcast, reflecting on the first day of the Sports Pro OTT Summit USA. We're going to be talking now to one of our platinum partners for this year's event. Harmonic is a leading provider of video streaming services, offering cloud-based solutions and software as a service, or SaaS, to some of the biggest broadcast and media companies around. And during Sports Pro OTT USA, I caught up with Jean Machère, the Business Development Director for SaaS Solutions at Harmonic about delivering video more efficiently when networks are stretched, supporting remote work, adapting to the demands of newly integrated OTT products, and more besides. Let's take a listen. This is the Sports Pro Podcast. Jean Machère, Director of SaaS Business Development at Harmonic. Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hello, Aaron. How are you? I am very well, thanks. I hope you are too. Um, Jean, looking at, at some of the sessions that we've seen so far at OTT USA, what, what are some of the challenges that you see the digital broadcast industry facing right now? Yes, great question. So I think uh, for, for OTT streaming for sports especially, this is really coming of age and you have uh, major you know, premium sports property now running uh, on those OTT streaming platforms. And uh, as such, you know, uh, you want availability, you want reliability, especially for live sport, you cannot afford to have any type of outage or problems. And uh, at the same time, OTT streaming is a technology that is, you know, still fluent and complex. And so when you look at, you know, what happens when you do a live sporting event and you stream it to, you know, a big audience, uh, from the source all the way to, let's say, a video platform running in the cloud, to, to your CDN, to your last mile, a lot of things, you know, could happen along the way. Uh, you see what I'm saying? So mm. it's really critical to plan uh, uh, accordingly. So for us, because we provide, you know, live streaming platforms that are cloud-based and, and we offer them as a SaaS, what we do first is that it comes together with a 27 monitoring, we call that DevOps, people that are scattered around the world that you know constantly monitor 
those uh, streaming platforms. Of course, they're running the cloud, so everything is connected. Uh, you have automated tools, but you all, always have somebody on, on call that can, you know, see something proactively, do something about it. So, so that's the first, you know, aspect. You need, you need to plan, you need to monitor uh, proactively your services, you know, for live streaming. Mm. The second thing is uh, if you're talking about kind of, you know, premium and tier one providers, uh, you need to build, you know, uh, enough, you know, redundancy. So we look at different level of redundancy from, from uh, you know, simple all the way to uh, big, big spot properties. So for us, that means that you, you, you have to look again along the way, source redundancy, uh, the cloud platform itself, um, you know, we architect it in a way that is self-healing, if you'd like. So one single video platform um, as, as a, a cluster structure. So it's multiple nodes. Uh, you lose one node, another one picks up. You need extra capacity. Uh, you have, you know, new nodes added to the cluster. That's the elasticity of the cloud, if you'd like. Um, and, and after that, you can add more than one platform, uh, what we call geo redundancy. And then for your delivery, you know, your CDN, you can have more than one CDN as well. You measure in real time the performance of the CDN. You can route, you know, among CDNs. So all of that is at play. And you, you have, uh, basically the, the, the level of redundancy that, that, that you want, that you need, of course, that comes with the cost. Uh, but, but you could have all of that at play at the same time for the big uh, tier one, you know, uh, uh, premium sports properties running those streaming platforms. Mm. So what are, what are some of the solutions that we're seeing developed to, to meet, uh, some of those issues to solve some of those challenges that you talked about there? So, um, what's interesting is, uh, we, we took a look recently at, uh, the sports project, sports specifically, uh, that we won in the past six months. And, and what I mean by that is we provide the video platform, you know, the video stack and the delivery engine for live streaming platform for sports, right? And um, some of them are for, let's say, medium-sized sports properties. Some of them are for big size. You know, you'll see that in the US in, in the next coming weeks. Um, but there, there are some commonality. So the big guys, and, and I'm talking about, you know, tier one or tier zero, whatever you want to call them, they all want to have the max possible redundancy. And so they all went with that, what I called before, I touched on that, but the geo redundancy aspect. So not only do you have one video platform instance, we call that an instance running, you know, in the public cloud in one region, but you duplicate it and you have another one, you know, running in another region. Okay. So we, we, we do that. We can even do that, uh, you know, with a region from one cloud provider, a region from another cloud provider. And then the, the, the challenge or the, the complication, if you'd like, is you, you have to keep them synchronized so that if you need to go from one to the other, so, you know, you have a CDN, uh, after the video platform and is able to load balance across the two and we keep them tightly synchronized, the two video platforms so that wherever, you know, the CDN is pulling from, this is a seamless, you know, stream for the end user. So this is a little technical, little complicated, but you get the idea. You mm. build the max redundancy, uh, for those tier one properties. The, the other thing, um, 
that that has happened is that all of the sports project we've launched again in the past six months they all uh, take advantage of our content aware encoding so so what is that that's uh, basically a way to improve the video quality or, or the compression efficiency as I, I should say so we use um, it's called IQ for harmonic and we use machine learning and uh, AI to kind of mimic the human eye and, and it's feels like magic, but basically we steal bits, you know, where your eye won't see, and we focus the bits where your eye will see. And what that enables you to do is to, uh, you know, optimize the bandwidth for a given video stream and reduce, you know, for a channel, the bandwidth by up to 50%. Mm. So uh, this is especially important right now with the lockdowns, you know, the COVID period. I don't mm. know if you remember the EU, that was back in March. At some point, they they were asking the streaming platform, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc., to reduce the top profiles that they are sending from HD to SD. Yeah, you know, that was drastic. That was unprecedented, right? So, I mean, for us, we understand the need. You need to, you know, relieve some of that bandwidth pressure that that was across the board, you know, on the internet. But at the same time, we think that you can relieve that pressure without sacrificing video quality. So that, that's one of the things that, you know, was not necessarily used a lot before COVID. But now, and again, especially for sports, across the board, everybody uses it because, you know, of the bandwidth constraint that, that we all experience, you know, in, in the COVID times. Mm. I mean, one of the things that we're hearing a lot about in the US OTT space, especially, is the integration of of things like betting, for example, other kind of gamification tools and uh, other personalization tools. What does that mean for you as a service vendor with regards to those kind of latency challenges that that you were just talking about? Yes, yes. So for us, uh, we we basically want to bring latency to the same level that uh, you have. Uh, experience with the broadcast distribution. So we're talking about, you know, you're watching with your IPTV system, your tertiary digital system, your satellite, you know, system, you get to the, I don't know, five, six seconds latency. That That's, that's, that's the goal. That's what we can do. And uh, the idea is to have, you know, uh, a latency that's on par. So that you don't have that huge discrepancy like you see today. When you do a streaming service, you know, it's getting better, but still it's more in the tens of seconds, you know, 20, 30, sometime 40, 50 seconds and not, you know, five to six. So we, we, we are working actively on this. We've been working actively on this. So, um, we try, it's important to understand we deliver video, uh, you know, from our streaming platform at scale. Mm. That means that that goes to millions of, of users. So we have to implement a latency scheme that scales. You see what I'm saying? And so that's why we uh, rely on the standards. So you probably heard of uh, CMAF, you know, low latency, and now HLS also has a low latency scheme, if you'd like. And, and those, you know, are designed to scale with massive audiences. Okay. So, so they won't give you the sub second they probably will go as low as you know two three seconds we're not talking about as low latency of web rtc but the on the flip side they can scale massively 
Okay, and so that's that's where we focus right now is to have that uh, low latency at scale, you know, for for streaming audience. Now, Sean, you spoke last year in Atlanta when we were we would have been doing this face to face. Since then, there's been a massive acceleration of of some of these trends, some of the technologies that have been adopted, probably quite a way ahead of the curve in terms of what we might have expected just over a year ago. So how is that? How has the discussion changed for for companies like yours as you're adapting to to what now may be you know permanent developments in in consumption? Yes. So for us, we we had started a transition to you know the cloud several years ago, and basically what we were experiencing before you know COVID is that depending on the geography and the customers, the adoption of the cloud was either a given or still, uh, you know, I'm not so sure. And now with COVID, everything has accelerated tremendously. So, you know, where people used to think, oh, let's see later. Now they might not have a building or a physical, you know, facility to go to and produce their content, monitor feeds. You see what, what I'm saying? Mm. And now the, the, the question of, okay, do I offload some of my operation to the cloud so that, you know, I can access it remotely? My teams can do their work remotely. Well, obviously, yes, you, that's, that's what you want to do because that's the, your only option. So, you know, that, that means there is no going back. You know, we, we have seen a huge acceleration in that trend. And uh, for us, that means more, you know, much more deployment that are cloud-based versus on-premise-based. Um, and also, you know, more things like optimization through machine learning, like I was telling you before, to optimize bandwidth, to monitor the platforms uh, across the board. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's a huge accelerator. And uh, I, I, I'm convinced uh, we won't be coming back. Jean, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Anytime. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice? And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro podcast. We're listening to. Okay. Thank you to Jean Machère for his time there. We're going to leave you as discussed with a selection of clips from day one. A reminder once again that you can catch up with everything from the whole event on demand if you register at sportspro-ottusa.com. We'll be back again on the podcast with a recap from day two very soon. But let's hear now from some of our contributors so far. The SportsPro OTT Summit USA began with SportsPro Managing Director Nick Meacham speaking to David Gandler, co-founder and chief executive of the fast-advancing Fubo TV. They covered the potential of the Fubo TV platform and the future value of sports content in a wide-ranging interview. And with the company having just posted record financial results, Nick pressed David on what those numbers meant for its strategy in the years ahead. 
Look, the way I look at it, and I mentioned it in my um, in my comments uh, yesterday, was that if you look at Fubo as a platform, we command a significant timeshare of a household's sort of monthly activity, right? The average uh, household right now spends about 127 hours, uh, that's average, uh, um, on Fubo in the fourth in the fourth quarter. Okay, I anticipate that number will continue uh, to grow. So the number of hours uh, is growing and the number of hours people spend on Fubo today on a daily basis is 7.2 uh, hours. That is a tremendous, that's a third of your day you have the Fubo platform on. That is a very powerful thing. If you look at Roku's numbers, which is an amazing uh, platform, you know, they're averaging three and a half hours. So it just goes to show you how much time people are spending on the platform. So what does that really translate to when you think about uh, the economics of the business? So uh, yesterday I also mentioned that, uh, you know, the average customer spent about $754 for the year on Fubo, which includes $80, $80 plus of advertising revenue. So with the number of hours that we're able to um, – you know, command from our from the average household as we scale. You know, the question is, can you get to fifteen hundred dollars uh, per customer per year or two thousand dollars? And it's much easier to um, squeeze profits out of two thousand uh, dollars, you know, a year than if you're selling a four dollar product, you know, and you're getting call it forty forty five dollars uh, per year. So I think we're in a very different league. And I think the more time that people spend on the platform, the more uh, revenue generating products you're going to see us launch. Remember, you, you mentioned 20 billion data points. We're collecting a lot of data uh, at the moment. And we can actually see as we build profiles, as we see who's betting, as we we can then start to understand what else we can provide uh, to consumers to sort of expand our relationship with them. Very similar to think about what an Amazon does or um, you know, an Apple does. It's all about ecosystem. I think that there's an ecosystem opportunity here that's built around sports. So uh, obviously subscription uh, revenue, number one for video. Number two is you have advertising revenue, which I think uh, already is at $80 per year. You know, the question is, can that get to 100 to $120 per year? And we're just getting started. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's uh, uh, achievable. Uh, and then the wagering, you know, just looking at some of the uh, information that's come out after some of these earnings calls, but, you know, $60 of, uh, you know, of monthly uh, ARPU, that's, that's a pretty good number that has a 50% uh, gross margin, you know, and 10%, um, you know, uh, EBITDA. I think that that's, to me, is very compelling. So, you know, my goal is to continue to uh, expand our base, to scale it out, uh, to own more and more share uh, of time in the household and continue to find ways in which that we can monetize our customers. Obviously, it has to make sense. You can't just throw any products in the mix. But um, I feel that between advertising and wagering, there's a very, very large opportunity. Uh, and if we continue to scale out um, and add more hours, you know, there could be more products that uh, you know, we'll look to sell commerce, for instance, is another area where I think is is really compelling. Where you know you can you can sell uh, you know jerseys and uniforms, and in fact, you can even you know you're watching a football game. Why not just press a button and get DoorDash to deliver uh, wings to your house for your party? 
So there's lots of things I think that we have to be very creative about. These are, this is very early uh, in the process. And I think the top line revenue right now is a focus for me because it does open up a lot of doors to us. That means we can acquire more content. We can optimize our content bundles, which, which you saw. And I think that our ability to actually increase our contribution margin, which effectively, uh, I think as of uh, uh, mid-2021 or end of 2021 will be our gross profit, um, you know, that has really um, expanded over 2020. And just to remind everybody on this call, um, you know, we were negative margin. And I remember back in uh, January of 2020, people were telling me that this is a business that will always be negative margin. Okay. And here we are with not only positive contribution margin, but contribution margin that, you know, is up 1100 basis points, uh, you know, from the prior year. So I feel very good about where we are. Um, and I think that we have um, the right revenue streams. And I think the tailwinds are very strong. And, um, you know, we're building a product that is, is unique in the marketplace that already has really solid traction. So I think profits will come, cash flow will come. And there are companies like Netflix that have waited 25 years. Now, obviously, we're not Netflix and no one's expecting us, no one's expecting to wait 25 years. But, um, you know, we haven't really spent as much money. If you look at the, uh, the uh, level of expenditure on the wagering side, or you look at the level of expenditure on the video side, I mean, we have been, uh, in my opinion, um, very, very efficient and very effective with our capital. Uh, I don't think anybody would say otherwise. Fubo TV is just one of the companies hoping to integrate sports wagering into live broadcast products, and interest remains high in the gambling sector as a future source of revenue and engagement in the US. But with legislation on sports betting being passed state by state to very different timelines, implementing new products is a challenge. In a session examining how gambling will affect the sports broadcast sector, NBC Sports Group SVP and GM for Sports Betting and Gaming, Nicolina O'Rourke, explained why so many are looking to a stake-free option to give prospective players a route in. We really are big believers in the free-to-play strategy. And, and the reason for that is, you know, you brought up earlier, Sarah, while there's um, a lot of velocity in the discussions around legalization of sports betting, I'll tell you in the last two years, I've learned a lot about what it means to get from legalizing sports betting to actually becoming operational, right? And that can be a long road for an operator. And in all of that time, free-to-play is a way to build that database. It's that first touch point where we're creating engagement, creating education, building, you know, we look at California and go look at the population, but when's it gonna go legal and when's it gonna go mobile? And we can build that targeted database today, even though you can't place a bet yet, right? And when that switch finally flips, we have very specific people that we have very specific information on, the sports they like to engage with. You know, the goal with Predictor is we're gonna add another three to six games over the course of the next 18 months. And the idea is to basically cover off as many sports as we can so that we know where people are going to place their action, right? And where we can convert. And, you know, the other opportunity here when we look at Texas and California is Spanish sports books, right? There's, there is a huge opportunity in terms of the array of products that can be offered. This is not 
this is not a one size fits all on the gaming product side of things. And we're going to be, and you see it too with um, their competitor. So I say this, but we admire what, you know, sort of Foxbet Super Six, right? The number of games that they're able to put into the marketplace um, any given week on any given topic, including Wall Street bets, that's a different consumer that comes into that database. That's a different touch point that you can then convert in the future to a sports book potentially, or as a media company into Peacock subscriptions, right? We look at these as all touch points into a broader ecosystem of moving the consumer around. Um, and so free to play is a great entry point. When you look at our free to play products later this year, we're gonna be introducing greater points bet integration, not only from a contextual storytelling. So when you're making your picks, you have the over unders, you have some data around how you can make a better pick, a little more educated, you don't have to go off site. And in, you know, in legal states, you'll be able to convert that to a, a bet slip. You know, that's the ideal, right? Just less and less friction as you move through the funnel. So the initial product may not be exactly what that is, which is sports betting. We get you closer and closer to our partner um, as we move down the funnel. So uh, free-to-play is a, a gateway in a good sense. Digital disruption may be a big threat to the old live broadcast rights model, but it promises to give highlights some fresh impetus if sports organizations can nail their approach. In a panel considering how to optimize highlights for new audiences, YouTube Head of Sports for the Americas, John Cruz, lays out how to get the best value from them. I don't think it's a binary decision, whether it's either marketing or revenue generating. I think that it, you can have both. I think sequencing is key, though. First and foremost, highlights are going to be a fan development tool. They should be in service of the fan and should create an authentic and meaningful touch point for that fan. And as you're able, as a programmer, is able to grow the reach of these highlights to drive engagement, to attract uh, to attract demos that an advertiser or brand would find interesting, uh, to the point Tim made, there should be an array of brand integration opportunities, ads monetization revenue streams, the opportunity to put you know links to tickets and merch next to these highlights. So the revenue should be that the revenue opportunities should be ample, but they should be a follow on um, once you have uh, developed that first kind of, you know, touch point in relationship with the fan via the highlight. If you try and reverse that order, um, you could find yourself in, you know, problematic spots uh, as you look to, you know, increase the reach of your content. Finally, the big broadcast story of the year, certainly in the US, looks sure to be the next set of media rights sales by the National Football League. Whatever the outcome of ongoing talks, they will have been informed by everything learned in the last few seasons, especially when it comes to new audience behaviours. In a session looking at 5G's potential impact on the fan experience, NFL VP for Digital Media Business Development Blake Stuchin revealed what the league had discovered in its experiments on Twitch and how this had changed its perspective on emerging media. So the Twitch experience, that's a lot of different ways, by the way, for a fan to watch the same game, which is really exciting when we get to things like personalization. And Brian, as you talk about it, builds on these themes that we're seeing in what fans we think ultimately want across sports and, and football and many other sports are seeing this as well. Um, but it's also something that we've learned a lot about. Um, as part of our Amazon partnership, for the last three years, we've had the live Thursday night football games on Twitch. We're doing two things there. One is 
fans can watch the same game that they could watch on television. That's great. It's unauthenticated. It's an easy experience for fans to access. The second thing they can do is to really lean into the power of Twitch. We have worked with the Amazon and Twitch teams to bring some of the most influential streamers on Twitch who are football fans to invite them into the virtual living room or the virtual streaming environment inside of their channels to watch the game as well. So people like Ninja, one of the world's uh, most well-known and popular streamers on Twitch is from the Michigan area and is a huge Lions fan. And the way that he is showing the game and when you're watching the game from Ninja's channel on Twitch, what you're seeing is not him trying to impersonate play-by-play -play and call the game like Buck and Aikman, but instead to invite people in with that very personal touch that he has that makes him so compelling a figure for the millions of people who follow him on Twitch. It's intimate, it's personal, and most notably, because this is so core to the Twitch experience, the velocity of comments that you see in the right rail or below the, below the video when you're on mobile is what makes that environment so unique. There's comments, there's emotes, we're leaning into the technology itself to make it as native as possible and build on that. So whether it's Twitch, Tim the Tatman, Gold Gloves, these are some of the most popular streamers on Twitch, and they're avid football fans. And so for us, it's a great and differentiated audience. A lot of the people that are finding the games on Twitch are more casual fans, or to the extent that they're not even fans, but they uh, are fans of the streamer. And this is a way for us to introduce them to NFL football, or even if they're already avid fans, to give them just a different approach. And it's, for us, been really complimentary to what we're doing. You asked me, Brian, about where that feeds into um, social media and how we think about social broadly. Um, you know, we, we mentioned this concept that we have of this is the third phase that we're entering into of sports social media. The way we look at that is the first phase from 2013, we partnered with Twitter. That was the first time that an NFL fan could see a highlight anywhere at all on a mobile device outside of some gated applications that we had. And that had to do with rights and it had to do with technology. It was the right time and place for that. But what was exciting and Again, it, I keep saying this, but it was done hand in hand with Verizon as a key part of our, our partnership. Verizon introduced the, the whole of this. Um, we made highlights available for fans in, at the time, near real time. The funny thing about near real time is the first highlight we ever put on Twitter was four minutes long, and it took us 38 minutes to upload it. First of all, for anybody who's watched video on Twitter lately, you know that four minutes is an awful long time to watch a video clip on Twitter and for it to take 38 minutes during a live game, we obviously needed to get a lot better. And we're really proud of the fact that we've improved quite a bit on any given NFL game. Now you're going to see highlights go up on Twitter in usually less than 60 seconds. But the amazing thing about that is that first phase was all about just this sort of kitty hawk moment for sports highlights get the content online and make it as accessible as possible so that the tv can go on the internet the second phase of that that we're just coming out of and these things all build on each other the highlights still remain the foundation the second phase of it has been all about personalization it's about leaning into the power of these platforms to express oneself whether it was snapchat with ar lenses or Giphy with GIFs that serve as a post-text form of communication for so many people, especially younger audiences. There's all these ways now that we see tools that enable sports fans to express themselves and converse about the sports that they love using technology that just didn't exist before. 
And so that gets us to this third phase. You know, I talked about it with watch together being the first step toward a whole host of other things that we're excited about, building on a live experience that people can now be doing digitally that complements both the in-stadium and in-home experience, coupled with all of these personalized features that we've never been able to do before. So imagine in the near future, we're gonna be able to present the game and enable fans to be watching it inside of a virtual environment where they can bring social features, they can bring next-gen stats. Dave talked about the incredible work that the NHL is doing with next-gen stats. We also have all kinds of great data, be it speed, distance traveled, all sorts of things that for fans are really compelling for their own storytelling and the way that they're actually interacting as fans, as well as opening up all kinds of new applications for us as well, be it sports betting or other forms of data and information science. So it's really exciting because for us, this is the best time ever, we think, to be a football fan, to be a sports fan generally. And any way that fans wanna interact with us, it starts with the live game, it starts with the in-stadium and in-arena experience is better than anything else. But on top of it, as we challenge ourselves to make those venues as compelling as possible, we also wanna keep challenging ourselves to make the in-home and a sort of out-of-home mobile experience as dynamic as possible, because all of it uh, is about, for fans, giving them what they want. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 